Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we are visiting the Doctor's favourite period of history, the Reign of Terror. We will be going through some trivia for this story and we will discuss the Doctor, the companions, the villains and our thoughts on the story as a whole. Before we get into all that though, Paddy, why don't you give our listeners a recap of this story? Will do. Episode 1, A Land of Fear. The TARDIS lands in a forested area in the evening time. The mood inside is sombre. The Doctor tells Susan to say her goodbyes, but she is reluctant to bid farewell to her new friends. Ian and Barbara point out the longer they put off going home, the harder the part will be for all of them. She hugs them and runs away crying. The Doctor wonders why they haven't left yet, and they tell him that given the last few trips, they may not be where they think they are. He shows them some of the long-range video scans of the outside world, and Barbara says it reminds her of the Somerset countryside. They again jokingly mention his previous attempts to land them on Earth, but again he gets the hump and insists that they have arrived correctly this time. Ian decides to use the Doctor's ego against them in an effort to confirm they are actually home. He says that they shouldn't part on negative terms and suggests they go for a friendly drink before he leaves again on his important work, which could stop him from ever visiting them again. It works, and all four travellers exit the TARDIS in search of a pub. They realise that they are on a farmland, but seem confused that they cannot see any lights in the distance, even if they are in the rural countryside. They hear a noise in the bushes nearby and Ian goes to investigate, coming back with a ragged, dirty child. He seems terrified of the doctor, but assuring him that they mean no harm, he informs him that they are actually in France, not too far from Paris. The doctor doesn't see this as a big problem, but Ian points out that the distance not be the only thing keeping them from home. The doctor goes to question the boy again, but he flees. He goes to an old, dilapidated building and the travellers take off after him. They come across the building and realise that they could be at least a hundred years away from being home as well as a hundred miles. They enter the house and begin to search it, with the doctor taking the upstairs. The others come across chests containing food, 18th century clothing and travel documentation with the signature Robespierre. Ian and Barbara's suspicions about the doctor's accuracy are confirmed when they realise that they have landed during the worst part of the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror. Upstairs, the doctor is struck down by an unseen assailant as he searches. Meanwhile, the others have dressed in themselves in the spare clothing so as not to look out of place when they go back to the TARDIS during the daylight. Susan refers that they may not go back to the TARDIS for a while, as this is the Doctor's favourite period in Earth's history. Suddenly, they are approached by two armed men. They reveal themselves as counter-revolutionaries who intend to escape from France. They say that the Doctor is un- unconscious upstairs and demands to know that the group's intentions and their allegiances. As they argue, Ian draws their attention to the sound of approaching men. They see that they are a band of revolutionary soldiers and one of the men is terrified at the concept of being captured and sent to the guillotine. The other one says that he must fight to remain free and offers a weapon to Ian to aid in their defence. The soldiers surround the house with the intention of breaking the nerve of those trapped inside. Ian goes to check on the doctor, and the nervous man makes a break for freedom, with his companion going after him, but both men are shot and killed. Ian hears Susan scream and rushes back downstairs, but he is apprehended by the soldiers. They are brought outside to be shot, but the lieutenant says that they should be brought to Paris in case there is a reward for them and so they can also be executed by guillotine. As they leave, the soldiers set fire to the house. The doctor regains consciousness, but just as the smoke starts to enter the room. He tries to get out, but falls unconscious again due to the heavy smoke. Episode 2. Guests of Madame Guillotine Ian, Barbara and Susan are brought to the concierge prison and sentenced to death due to their suspected counter-revolutionary sympathies. The two women are sent to a separate cell from Ian and the jailer makes advances on Barbara in exchange for potentially helping them get free. Barbara slaps him and he throws them into a cell that he reserves for his special guests. Once inside, Susan wonders again what happened to the doctor with Barbara reassuring her that he got out of the burning building before it was too late. The doctor wakes up and finds out that he has been brought outside and that his rescuer is the little boy from earlier. 
He informs the Doctor of what has happened to his companions, and he thanks the boy for saving him and sets off for Paris to rescue the others. In the prison, Barbara is trying to figure out how they can escape, but Susan is unusually pessimistic and doesn't see any way out for them. She admits that she is too wrapped up in her concern for the Doctor to think of anything else. Barbara tries to rally her spirits by pointing out the previous situations that they have escaped from, and this one should be no different. She notices a damp patch in the cell wall and decides to try and lever the stones out to make a hole that they can escape through. She starts her task as Susan keeps a lookout. Ian, meanwhile, is tending to a sickly cellmate, an Englishman by the name of Webster. He has been sent to retrieve a spy who has information on France's future military plans. He asks Ian to find him, and as he is a, fe- as he is a fellow Englishman, and passes away after telling Ian to look for a man named Jules Renan, who can tell him where to look for Sterling. As he makes his way towards Paris, the doctor comes across a work party digging ditches on the road. After insulting the foreman's leadership style, he is forced to join in the digging when he cannot provide identification papers. In the jail, fatigue takes its soul on the two women, and they decide to cease digging for the night. The jailer enters with their evening rations and notices the blankets from the beds on the floor, where they are hiding the hole uh, that they dug so far. Just as he is about to uncover it, a voice calls out for him and he rushes to meet it, much to the relief of Susan and Barbara. They finish their food and attempt to get back to work, but discover their escape way is filled with rats, dozens and dozens of rats. Barbara quickly plugs up the hole and comforts a despondent Susan. In Ian's cell, a well-dressed man enters and demands to know how long Webster has been dead. Ian recognises him as an important citizen in the revolutionary movement and answers him but shows he is not intimidated. The well-dressed man leaves and asks the jailer if he overheard Ian and Webster talking, who says he did but he has no idea about what. Meanwhile, back at the work party, the doctor organises a plan to overcome the foreman. He distracts the guard by saying that there will be a solar eclipse happening and then takes some money from his pocket and plants it on the ground nearby. He calls the foreman's attention to it and when he attempts to retrieve it, he is knocked unconscious. The work gang flee and the doctor continues on his way to Paris. Barbara and Susan are brought from their cells and are told that they are to be executed while Ian has been chosen to be spared at the order of the man from earlier, whose name is revealed to be Lemaitre. Ian watches from his cell in horror as Barbara and Susan are led to the guillotine. Episode 3. A Change of Identity The doctor arrives in Paris and he goes to a nearby tailor's and gathers information about the prison and its location. He passes himself off as a regional governor of the provinces and after after a bit of haggling manages to convince the tailor to give him his clothes reflecting his new status in exchange for the doctor's own clothes and one of his rings. Two counter-revolutionaries, Jules and Jean, lie in wait for Barbara and Susan's transport. The transport breaks down due to one of the horses throwing a shoe, necessitating a replacement horse to be brought. Barbara tries to use this as an opportunity to escape, but Susan says that she is too sick to move. Just as they are about to resign themselves to their fate, Jules and Jean attack the transport and eliminate the guards and rescue the two women. Back in the prison, the jailer is giving the prisoners their food when Lemaitre calls out to him and demands he attend him immediately. In his rush to appease the citizen, he leaves his keys in the lock in Ian's cell. Ian manages to get the keys and remove the one for for his cell from the bunch before returning it back to the lock. After being commended by Lemaitre for his work and high execution rate, the jailer realises that he has left the keys in Ian's door and rushes back to ensure he has not escaped. He returns to find Ian in the cell and so is satisfied that all is well. Susan, Barbara and their rescuers arrive at a safe house tended by Jules' sister Danielle. Jules uh, says they will arrange for their safe transport to England, but they say they cannot go without Ian and the doctor. In the jail, Ian makes his escape. He comes across the jailer unconscious on the floor and so continues on with the escape attempt. Unbeknownst to him, Lemaitre is observing him but lets him go as Ian could lead him to Sterling. 
After dinner, Barbara and Susan recount her story to Jules. He becomes alarmed when they mention the farmhouse and he calls Jean to join them. They tell the woman that the building was a safe house for an escape to England, organised by another colleague named Leon. Jean says that this is not the first time one of their safe houses has been discovered and so that there must be a spy in their organisation. Jules says that he will send someone to look for the doctor and somehow also free Ian. Susan is still not feeling well and so Barbara and Danielle take her to a room. After they leave, Leon arrives and informs Jules that someone is at the inn near the prison looking for Jules. Barbara returns and Leon is immediately smitten and starts to put the moves on her. After a drink and a discussion about the nature of the revolution and Barbara's status as an Englishwoman, she goes to bed. Back in the prison, the jailer is trying to recover from what is revealed to be an attack by some unknown person. The doctor enters loudly, wearing the clothes of the office of a regional governor of the southern provinces and throws his, begins throwing his weight around to add to his pretense. He asks about after the others and is told of the rescue of Susan and Barbara and the escape of Ian, whom he blames for his attack. Lamaitre enters silently and observes what is happening. Suspicious of the doctor, he requests he accompanies him as he goes to discuss the southern province with Robespierre. Left with no other choice, the doctor agrees. After they leave, the tailor arrives and presents the doctor's ring as evidence against him, branding him as a traitor. Episode 4. The Tyrant of France Lamaitre and the doctor are admitted to Robespierre's office. The doctor tries to steer the conversation towards current events in Paris, but Robespierre is all business and asks for a report of the executions in the southern province. He is obsessed with rooting out his enemies, and the doctor uses this to divert his attention so as to preserve his ruse. He asks what good all these executions will do. Robespierre says it is for the good of France, as he intends to do great things once he has eliminated all threats to his power. He says it is time for them to leave, but requests they come back tomorrow, as they didn't actually discuss the southern province. Lemaitre's suspicion of the doctor begins to deepen. At the hideout, Barbara is caring for Susan, who seems to be getting worse. Danielle brings her something to make her feel better, but leaves quickly after a very brief and stilted conversation with Leon. Barbara is very concerned for Susan's well-being and implores Leon to help. He agrees to go look for a physician, despite highlighting the dangers of being potentially reported as a counter-revolutionary. He leaves and promises to see Barbara again. Susan comments on the apparent mutual attraction between the two of them, and Barbara brings her back to bed. After they have gone, Jules and Jean return through a window, carrying the unconscious form of the man who had been looking for them. It is revealed to be Ian, and that they ambushed him for fear that he would alert the nearby soldiers to their presence. Barbara returns and informs them of Leon's departure, but stops when she sees Ian. The two friends hug each other in their delight at their respective safety. Barbara introduces him to Jules and Jean, and Ian reveals that Jules is the man that he has been looking for at the inn. He tells of his time in the cell with Webster, but Jules says he doesn't know the man, nor uh, Sterling, the person that Webster told him to look for. Jules says Webster was most likely knew his name because of his previous dealings with the English in his attempts to escort counter-revolutionaries from France. He theorises that if Sterling is gathering highly classified information, as Webster said, then he must be using an alias to be able to move around so freely. Jean is apprehensive about helping further, as England is at war with France but Jules reminds him that it's the revolution that they are at war with. Jean chooses to depart then and begin to search for the doctor and says he will return within three days. Meanwhile, Jules says he will enlist Leon to help search for Sterling. Barbara returns from checking in on Susan and says she is getting worse. Lemaitre and the doctor return to the prison, discussing the meeting with Robespierre. The doctor tries to beg off going back the following day, but Lemaitre is insistent that he must remain in Paris. He asks the jailer to arrange accommodation in the soldiers' quarters for the doctor for the night and is in turn informed about the presence of the tailor and so he goes to meet him. The tailor tells of his encounter with the doctor and his suspicions of him being an imposter. 
Lamatra thanks him for his information and bribes him to remain silent on the matter. He also tells him to leave the prison via a different doorway to avoid being seen. The doctor tries to leave again, but the jailer pulls a gun at him, stating that their lives would be forfeit if the doctor was allowed to leave. The doctor agrees and is escorted to the soldiers' quarters. The following morning, the doctor attempts to sneak out, but is stopped by Lamatra. He apologises for the uncomfortableness of the doctor's room and invites him to breakfast, offering that the day would be an eventful one. Back at the safe house, Danielle arrives with a message from Leon saying the physician will not come to the safe house. Jules says instead Susan must go to him and suggests sending her with Barbara to avoid arousing suspicion. Ian is reluctant to leave his friends again, but agrees after Jules says he will send for Leon to help search for Sterling. At the physician's office, he indicates that she has caught a fever and questions them as to the origin of it and the blisters on Susan's hands. He tells them that he requires leeches and insists that they stay in the house until he returns. Susan says that she doesn't like him and Barbara agrees that something seems wrong and makes the leave. However, they discover the door has been locked. The physician goes to the jail to inform on them and returns with a squad of soldiers who takes them back into custody. They arrive at the jail where Susan is sent to the cell and Barbara is sent for questioning on Lamatra's orders. She is brought into a room and sees the doctor is to be her interrogator. Once the jailer leaves, the two friends embrace while unbeknownst to them, Lamatra is outside eavesdropping. Ian is unhappy with the delay in Barbara and Susan's return and asks to be allowed to go look for them. Jules says that he will look for them instead and that Ian can go meet with Leon at a secret location. Ian arrives at the rendezvous, which is in the catacombs of a disused church, and meets with Leon, who has brought a squad of soldiers with him, revealing himself to be a revolutionary spy. Episode 5. A Bargain of Necessity Ian is shackled to a pillar, and Leon wants information about him and Jules' group. Ian says he knows nothing, but Leon doesn't believe, and leaves him in the care of the soldiers. The doctor asks after Susan and Ian, and Barbara brings him up to date on what has occurred. Outside, Lemaitre is still listening in on them, while the jailer appears with a message for him. Lemaitre tries to get him to leave, but the jailer says the message is a summons from Robespierre. He leaves after instructing the jailer to ensure Susan is kept secure. Meanwhile, the doctor has come up with a plan to help Barbara escape. He goes to meet the jailer and convinces him that she is a high-ranking member of Jules' organisation, who has information about the location of every traitor in France. He tricks the jailer into suggesting releasing her so that she can be followed. He unlocks her cell and hides, as Barbara leaves as the doctor instructed her to do as part of his escape plan. The soldiers are getting frustrated with Ian's lack of cooperation. Leon implores him to give them the information that he, that he wants, as he has the power to send Ian to the guillotine or to spare him. Ian says he's known nothing about Jules' organisation or who Sterling is. Ian says that he is lying and demands to know the truth of his arrival in France. Ian gives him what he wants and tells him that he's arrived from 1963 in a wooden box with three others. Leon signals for the guards to beat him, but Jules arrives, having come looking for Ian after hearing of the girl's arrest, and proceeds to kill the guards and Leon. He releases Ian and informs him of Barbara and Susan's arrest, and they make their way back to the hideout. In the prison, the doctor speaks to Susan and tells her that he has managed to get Barbara out, but hears something before he can say more. The jailer enters and is surprised that the doctor is still there, having thought that he had gone to follow Barbara. The doctor says it is not his; it was not his idea to release her, so he shouldn't have had to follow her. He offers to help the jailer in exchange for him releasing Susan into his custody, but the jailer refuses, saying he has to obey Lemaitre's orders for fear of reprisal and execution. Lemaitre arrives at Robespierre's office and is told by an outraged Robespierre that there is a plan to oust him from power at the Revolutionary Convention the following day. He believes that the deputy of the convention, Paul Barras, is the leader of the, of the opposition and dispatches Lemaitre to gather proof against Barras. Jules and Ian return to the safe house and encounter Barbara, who tells them of her meeting with the doctor and his plan to get Susan out. 
They inform Barbara of Leon's fate, but she doesn't take the news well and argues with him about their judgment of him as a traitor, stating that one side's traitor is another side's patriot. She also points out to Ian that some of the some of the good that the revolution did. They both take time to ponder the recent events. Back in the prison, the doctor is trying to get Susan out, and Susan hides out of sight in her cell, and the doctor raises the alarm to the jailer. When he goes to investigate the cell, the doctor attacks him from behind, and together he and Susan make a run for it. However, they are stopped by Lemaitre and a squad of guards. He takes the doctor to a private room and shows him the clothes and the ring that had been given to him by the tailor from earlier, telling him that he knew of his deception from the start. He blackmails the doctor into taking him to the others at Jules' hideout. At the hideout, Barbara apologises to Ian and Jules, but they say that they understand that it is hard to distinguish the man Leon was from the deeds that he did. They are discussing the motivations that Jules and Leon had to side with their respective groups when the doctor enters but is followed by Lemaitre. They look on in shock as Jules calls the doctor a traitor. Episode 6. Prisoners of the Concierge Lemaitre says that he is here as a friend and reveals that he was the one who attacked the jailer so that Ian could escape. When asked why he did this, he reveals that he is in fact Sterling, the man that Ian has been looking for. He promises to retrieve Susan and get them out of Paris in exchange for their assistance. Other than being told to return to England, he asks Ian what message Webster relayed to him, but Ian cannot quite remember the mumblings of Webster. Sterling says that he cannot go back without gathering information on the secret, Barras- on the secret meeting Barras will be attending. This triggers a memory in Ian, who mentions something about the sinking ship. Jules mentions that this is the name of an inn on the Calais Road. Sterling asks Ian and Barbara to go to the meeting, as Barras probably knows him and the doctor on site. They agree, and Jules offers to take them. They arrive at the inn and subdue the innkeeper. Ian poses as the innkeeper, while Barbara pretends to be a serving girl, and Jules poses as the guest. They drill a spy hole in the wall into the meeting room, so they can observe the meeting. Barras enters and is escorted into the meeting room. After the other patrons leave, Jules goes as well to avoid suspicion, and a cloaked figure enters the inn, going straight into the meeting room. He comes out again to ensure that, his no, that no one other than Ian and Barbara are in the inn and they see that it is Napoleon Bonaparte. Barras informs Napoleon that Robespierre is to be arrested during the convention and that he intends to install a new triumvirate for leadership, with Napoleon being one of the leaders due to his status with the people as a war hero. Napoleon, who is a man of deep ambition, agrees to this. Sterling echoes these sentiments to the others when they return, saying that Napoleon is dangerous and will use any foothold to gain complete power over France. He says that he will need to stop Robespierre's arrest as is the only way to avoid a military dictatorship. He takes Ian with him and tells the doctor and Barbara to get Susan from the prison and wait for Jules to collect them with a carriage. After they leave, Barbara shows her amusement at the situation to the doctor, having learned her lesson about trying to change history from their adventure with the Aztecs. A terrified Robespierre tries to barricade himself in his office, but soldiers break in and take him into custody. Sterling and Ian arrive just in time to hear Robespierre try and talk his way out of his predicament, but instead he is shot in the mouth to silence him. Sterling says that he will be most likely taken to the prison, potentially complicating the doctor's task. They return to the rendezvous outside the prison and meet with Barbara, and together they witness Robespierre being brought into the prison. Jules arrives with the carriage, and now they just need to wait for the doctor to return with Susan. The doctor enters the jail and announces that Lemaitre has been shot during the coup. He names the jailer as one of Lemaitre's accomplices and orders him to be taken into custody. The jailer pleads for his life and the doctor agrees but says he will need to release the other prisoners to make room for Robespierre and all his followers. He is given the keys and releases the overjoyed Susan. Before they leave, they witness a bloodied and beaten Robespierre being dragged in by a group of prisoners, no longer afraid of the now powerless tyrant. 
Outside, Jules and Ian are discussing the future of the revolution and its leadership, and Ian warns him to be mindful of Napoleon. Sterling, meanwhile, is talking to Barbara and voices his spiteful intuition that the travellers are more than they claim to be. Before he can say any more, the Doctor and Susan arrive, and together they make their way back to the TARDIS. They discuss how certain things in history need to happen, and that time has a tendency to protect itself, and so they continue on their journey. End of the story. So that's it for the story recap, and we're now going to go over to Trisha for some trivia notes. Over to you. Thanks, buddy. So the writer for today's story was Dennis Spooner. This is the first of four stories for which Dennis has writing credit. The others are The Romans, The Time Meddler, and several episodes of The Daleks Master Plan. And it's actually quite a resume for Doctor Who on his part. Those are some really, really good stories. Oh, it is. He also contributed to The Power of the Daleks, but wasn't credited for it. As well as being a writer, Dennis was actually the script editor of Doctor Who for six stories, starting with The Rescue and ending with The Chase. As well as Doctor Who, Dennis worked on a number of other well-known TV shows, including The Avengers, Stingray, Thunderbirds, The Baron, Doomwatch, The New Avengers, and Bergerac. Dennis passed away in 1986. The director for this story is Henrik Hirsch. Now, Hirsch had very little television experience. Great experience on stage. Very little experience on television. Which did not make for a good working relationship between him and the cast. Particularly William Hartnell, who didn't really respect him very much. He was under a lot of stress during the filming. And he actually collapsed from nervous exhaustion during the filming of episode 3 and he had to be temporarily replaced. Though most people say that John Gorey, the director of The Keys of Marinus, took over that third episode, Gorey apparently doesn't remember doing it. When Hirsch returned for the final three episodes, he split some of the workload with his production assistant, Timothy Combe. Apparently Combe also spoke to Hartnell during this time and Hartnell was a not nicer when Hirsch came back. The air date for the story was the 8th of August to the 12th of September, 1964. The Reign of Terror, as Paddy mentioned, is six episodes long. However, episodes four and five, The Tyrant of France and A Bargain of Necessity, are missing episodes. We discussed the missing episodes back when we were talking about Marco Polo. Thankfully, we do have the audio tracks for those episodes, and the 2013 DVD release of the story has animated versions of them, so you can watch the story uninterrupted, which is Mm -hmm. the version that we watched for today. Loose Cannon Productions, who we also mentioned when talking about Marco Polo, had also done a reconstruction of the missing episodes prior to the official BBC release. And I've actually seen those reconstructions and there's 10 seconds of footage. I think it's like 10 seconds of footage that exists, but it's mainly of a door closing. So <laughs> any time there, there comes a sequence in the, in the episodes where like someone has to leave the room, it's still images and all of a sudden just door closing. <laughs> This was the first Doctor Who story to feature location filming. Uh, Denham in Buckinghamshire was chosen by Timothy Combe, who we've already mentioned, because he thought it had French-looking lanes. Which, in fairness, I think looking at it, it does look quite French. Yeah, it it, it does. It's like very well-manicured hedges and hedgerows and trees going down the road. Yeah. This story was a replacement for a six-part story by David Whittaker, which would have been set at the time of the Spanish Armada. And it was William Russell's idea that they do a story about the French Revolution instead. 
Oh. So that's kind of cool. It is. Yeah. So the shots of the Doctor walking across France. Great shots, I must say. That wasn't actually the Doctor. Well, it was the character, but it wasn't actually William Hartnell. Those shots were filmed by, with a gentleman by the name of Brian Proudfoot. Lovely name. Filling in as the Doctor. And according to Car- Caroline Ford, he followed William Hartnell around in rehearsals to learn how to walk like him. And William Hartnell found it really annoying. Like, I've heard of body doubles, you know, for like nude scenes and movies or shows like, but like a walking double. That's, <laughs> it just seems kind of funny. Yeah, but in fairness to him, I love the fact that he actually went to the effort of trying to walk like William Hartnell as opposed to just walking because I wouldn't have known it wasn't him. Yeah, that, that's except that's for the fair. fact that I looked it up. <laughs> yeah, although I can I can just imagine like being a set hand and you like you think you're seeing like a live action version of Scooby Doo or something as the guy's just stalking behind Hartnell. <laughs> so interesting story. A design model of 16th century Paris was made for the story by designer Roderick Lang to help him with his work. This was later given to Caroline Ford as a present. However, it no longer exists. It was accidentally smashed to pieces when her cleaning lady hit it with a feather duster (laughs) and knocked it off the top of a wardrobe. Which is hilarious and unfortunate at the same time. Yeah. We've been talking over the last number of stories about our actors taking a bit of a break. You know, um, taking a holiday. This time it's the turn of William Russell. He was on holiday during the filming of Guests of Madame Guillotine and A Change of Identity and appeared only in pre-recorded film sequences for those stories. Which I'm guessing also explains why he was put in a different cell to Barbara and Susan. Mm. On to our guest cast. So... Jules, or Jules, is played by Donald Morley. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. However, like a lot of Doctor Who actors, he appeared in many TV shows, including The Basil Brush Show, Coronation Street, Zed Cars, Dad's Army, Emmerdale, and All Creatures Great and Small. Morley passed away back in 1999. Le Maître, or Sterling, whichever, I think we'll just call him Sterling because we don't yeah. want to butcher the French too much. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> was played by James Canecross. This is his first appearance in Doctor Who, though he does return as Beta in The Crotons. Again, appeared in many British TV shows, including Taggart, Crown Court, and Zedkars. He passed away back in 2009. Leon is played by Edward Br- Brayshaw. I think I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, looks all right. He also makes a return appearance to Doctor Who as the War Chief in the War Games and has also appeared on TV in The Avengers, The Bill and Bergerac. He passed away in 1990. The Jailer is played by Jack Cunningham. This is his only Doctor Who credit. But guess what? He was also in Zedkars <laughs> as well as other TV shows of the time. I don't list all the TV shows of, of the time because A, I don't know all of them. I'm not familiar with them. But you'll see that there's some common themes, and those are the ones I tend to mention. And as well, yep. Z- sorry, uh, Zed Cars is also one of the other, I think it's like the other big TV show that was a victim of the BBC's junking policy. I think it's like the first 100 episodes of Zed Cars are missing, I think. Yeah, I think so. And they were they were kind of being made around the same time. And so yeah. you'll hear me say it a lot that such and such was in Zed Cars as well. Um, Jack Odium passed away in 1967. 
Robespierre was played by Keith Anderson. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His other TV works include The Adventures of Robin Hood, The Avengers, Coronation Street, The Possessed, and you guessed it, Z Cars. <laughs> Keith passed away back in 2007. Oh. It's really, I've said this previously, but whenever I look these up and I start, you know, putting together little bits about the guest cast or pretty much anybody who worked on the show. I really hate when I look down my notes afterwards and next to everybody is passed away in such and such. Because even though I know the show was made in the 60s, so a lot of these actors, a lot of them were quite old at the time as well. It's just very depressing when I'm writing it. Well, how about we end this uh, section on a more positive note with a bit of personal trivia in relation to the story? Go on. Uh, so when I was a teenager, uh, my cousin uh, had this book which is about uh, hero uh, heroes in sci-fi. So it was like uh, Flash Gordon, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, um, like old Battlestar and Doctor Who. And at that stage, uh, the first four Doctors had gone to air. So that'll tell you how old uh, this book was. And the... The, the images that they had for the various doctors were like them in their normal clothes except for William Hartnell his picture was from this story so I always assumed that his big huge fancy plumed hat and big swashing cape was his regular clothes <laughs> which would have made him very very conspicuous in other stories yeah well apparently you actually reminded me of another fact that I that I saw a while back um, apparently William Hartnell, you know, regularly, you know, in his stories in history would, you know, update his clothing or something like that to match. Troughton did it a little bit and then it stopped. Yeah. And, you know, the doctor always wore the same clothes all the time. So it's actually interesting that you thought that his Reign of Terror outfit was his, his like primary outfit, but he's actually one of the few doctors that he didn't change his clothes all the time to match, but he did change them a lot to match the history that he was in. Yeah, I think it's like when he has the opportunity to change, he changes. So we've had some trivia and Paddy has given us a summary of the story as a whole. Now we're on to the meat and bones of time travelling team, our character discussion. So Paddy, I'll turn it over to you first. What were your thoughts on the Doctor in this story? Let me just say that the doc, the fancy dress doctor, is very fancy. He is very, very dapper in his uh, clothes, uh, which is why, as I said earlier on in the trivia section, that yes, he may have been very conspicuous if that was to be his regular style. But I thought it suited him. Um, I really enjoyed the doctor in this because like we've seen him have these like very authoritative moments. And the fact that he's portraying an authoritative character, it's just like for me, that's him being like a kid in a candy store. It's like, aha, I finally get to boss people around with legitimacy, even though I'm pretending to be someone I'm not. Um, But one thing that did kind of get me um, wondering was that how he fit into that pretense so easily. It adds again to the mystery of what was he like on his home planet? Like, what role was he in? Yeah, because it does suit him quite well. Do you know, he very yeah. easily slips into the authoritarian role. Yeah. 
or maybe it's such the, the authoritarian but maybe like some sort of a politician or dissident like you do get like it's kind of as time goes on there's the whole thing of like you know we're cut off from our planet it's like okay did you were you uh, exiled were you are you lost you can't find your way back what's going on but the more of his persona and uh, personality types that we get to see it's like okay I, I think you're a bit of a rebel and I think that you're probably you were probably in some capacity where you were against the establishment and you just decided to you know feck off <laughs> um but there was a couple of things i again like i really really enjoyed about this was like just like the swagger walking down the road which we now know isn't william hartnell it's a (laughs) walking double but the character it's just very oh like the music plays to it perfectly it's a very kind of you know cheeky chappy walking down the street type thing kind of a cockney walkabout which when you consider it though i mean it's not like you know walking from here to town like do you know no, it, <laughs> he's walking no, it's, to freaking paris and they're in the middle of bugger off nowhere yeah do you know like i mean i can't uh, remember what the mile marker said when he sat down at one point but like he was something like 20 30 miles away like something like that yeah and he, and he it, just, yeah, just wanders down the road like you know like you said a little a little cheeky shoppy i was half expecting like you know him just to sort of turn up you know completely impeccable you know absolutely fine whereas you would expect a man of his age to like keel over halfway there <laughs> although like i i have it in my head that like, given that we'll find out in um another while like his affinity for like uh 60s kind of pop culture and uh especially the beatles mm. i just have this in my head that at one point down the road he started singing do what <laughs> because <laughs> just like that sort of a mood that he's in like you know there's only like i suppose yeah like for a hundred mile walk you need a bit of a repertoire of singing songs yeah um there was one thing as well that i was just wondering about the way it was written so in okay so in the last uh story he's he gets into a huge huff when ian and barbara joke about his capabilities of landing where he intends to land and as the story is the season finale was it written was the temper tantrum written uh temper sorry was the temper tantrum written as a sort of um i don't want them to go but i'm too proud to say it type thing i don't know because i'm going to give a little bit of trivia for next week's story away now Mm -hmm. um this wasn't scripted and filmed to be the final episode of the season Oh. Planet of Giants was, and then later they decided to bump it up to season two. So okay. I don't know about that. I think it's a defense mechanism for him. Do you know? Yeah. Um, I think he uses all this bluster because A, they hurt his feelings by saying he can't fly. Mm. And yeah. B, he doesn't really want them to leave, and we know that. So he does all this bluster and whatever. So um, I don't know what the main intention was behind it, but. Yeah. yeah no I, I, it was just a thought that came into my head but one thing I loved about this story um, and like real f- for me to finish up is that I love it when the companions are separated or I love it when they're all separated for an extended length of time because it's great for character development and with the doctor like his solo adventures they're always fun to watch like 
especially like in the first uh was in the second episode when he comes across the work gang and it's like you know being the smart alecky doctor and then he immediately just stages a prison break because he just wants to get back to paris yeah it's something that we don't see as much in the new doctor who stories because they're not as long they're 45 Mm. minutes and maybe they go to a two-parter but not usually um anytime the doctor and the companion get separated in new who it's always like this rush to get back together again whereas in the classic stories it's obviously there's an importance there but we're not concerned as the viewer that the story can't progress because they're separated Mm-hmm. two independent or two overlapping storylines are completely normal and to be expected and it's absolutely fine and like there's no um oh like the doctor separated from this story it's going to be really bad no it actually works really well and you know we will see that more as the show goes on it actually happened quite a lot in classic who um but it doesn't happen so much in new who and i miss it to be honest yeah like i'm the same because like again it's and the one thing as well that Classic Who allows us for like the story based companions. So like we're gonna we're gonna be talking about Jules and we'll have to see where we decide to put Lemetra uh, <laughs> due to his uh, nature. But like when we get when we do eventually get to New Who, uh and we will get to New Who, um the the story based companions for me, very few of them are very memorable. Yeah. because uh, again it's you might have one or two lines to speak about them and one story right that does come to come to mind that i watched recently uh way sorry for jumping the timeline ahead in terms of story-based companions is uh Toot and claw the one with the werewolf in scotland mm. and that felt very classic who to me in terms of the creep factor the horrorness of it and some really interesting uh, some interesting performances by some good car- uh, actors and ca- the characters they're portraying so i'm looking forward to discussing those kind of episodes but for me for new who they're not as um, um or just not as much of an amount of them as classic yeah going back to the doctor for a moment i will talk a bit more about this in a second because i have another bit to add in that but just going back to the doctor for a moment um i agree with you his outfit was fabulous oh absolutely it's just it's the hat it's the hat that gets me like and he and he just owns it as well which is brilliant um but, uh go on no, because like there's a line in the Censorites, uh, uh, the last story where he goes, you know, oh, Bo Brummel always said I look great in the cape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love how he plays with clothes. Like it's, it's part of his character, which is great. Ian and Barbara know how to play him so well. Oh, they do. They, they just do. totally get him turned around to get him to go investigate with them. Another thing that we probably would never see in New Who is the idea of like, oh, we'll go down the pub to have a drink to say goodbye. That that would never happen <laughs> in New Who. Yeah. Um, but like, while we see that temper tantrum carry over from last week, and we've discussed a lot, like, I mean, that's part of the first Doctor's personality is he is short-tempered. And it's just the way he is. And he does not like people criticising his flying ability or his abilities in general so you know we got to see that carried over but we do also see that he really doesn't want them to leave he does care for them do you know um which i think is nice i do hope that this story kind of marks the end of 
that particular thing because while it's good and it speaks to his character it can be overdone we've had eight stories now and they've kind of used it a few times so let's you know put a pin in that for the moment do you know at least with ian and barbara yeah i don't think there's a whole lot of stories coming up where he does get into that sort of uh huff with them yeah i don't think so either but i'm kind of uh, you know, I said it's good for his character because it's true to his character. But like I said, we just put a pin in that for now because we've seen it enough now. That's good. In the story as a whole, though, he is totally in his element, <laughs> and he is. Well, obviously, he's very concerned, and I feel so bad for him in the last two stories when he's like, "But what about Susan? I need to get my granddaughter back. I don't care what we have to do. I need to get my granddaughter back." And I, you really feel for him because usually. It's Susan's point of view we see when they're separated. Mm. So it's interesting to see from his point of view for once. Yeah. But throughout the story, I mean, he's playing the fiddles that he needs to to get people to do whatever he wants. Like the way he talks Robespierre around to the fact that they never actually discussed what Robespierre wanted to talk about. The way he plays the guy on the side of the road with the work group. And I don't know about you, but I kind of got a sense of, you know, we've kind of, I've compared him to like Loki in previous stories. Am I the only one who, with that work group thing, kind of got a sense of Norse mythology a bit? Do you know, um, I can't remember the specifics of it now and I probably should have looked it up, but whatever. Uh, The story where, I think it's Thor, or it might have been Loki, and... um, the guys with the scythes who are working and the scythes are very blunt and he sharpens the scythes and they all end up killing each other. This is, this, this is a, a really bad bell. summary of that bit. <laughs> <laughs> Any of our Scandinavian listeners or Viking enthusiasts are like, oh, how dare you? Or Rick Riordan fans, you know, because that's where my yeah. brain pulled it from. <laughs> yeah. But no, it reminded me of, of that, of... You know, again, that sort of trickster nature of playing people against each other or playing someone against themselves, um, which is great. The other thing as well, you know, we, we talked about his walk across the French countryside to get to Paris. But at the time that this episode aired, you know, we don't know about Time Lords and all that kind of stuff. We don't know anything about how long they live or anything. So from our, from the point of view of a fan at the time, he is an old man who just strikes out and walks to Paris. Yep. Which I think is a good way of kind of showing his determination and the fact that he does it with such ease. Do you know, like we said, he's not like panting and like falling over. He gets tired, obviously, but it's not a big deal. Um, I do like that because we see that even though he's an old man and we kind of got that sense like when he gets trapped in the fire and stuff like that, he is also a strong person. Which is great. The other thing that really struck me is... Can you imagine being a kid in the 60s? Watching this. You know, you're now eight stories in. You really like the show. It's going really well. And the cliffhanger is the doctor unconscious in a burning building. And you have to wait a week. Yeah. Like, bearing in mind, I had to wait a grand total of about 30 seconds... Because I just hit yeah. next episode and skipped the intro <laughs> <laughs> when I was watching it on the DVD. But can you imagine being a kid like, and seeing the doctor 
in a fire and like they didn't tone down that fire in in the shooting either do you know they it looked massive and like that's again one thing that i really wish that they would do more of a new who is more two-parters because the cliffhangers of doctor who are fantastic like there's some really really good cliffhangers and while some of them are like more close-ups on a character's face there are some really good moments again like where like we had Barbara being stalked by the Dalek we have now the Doctor or sorry uh, Ian in Aztecs in the, the tunnel that was flooding and now we have the Doctor in a burning building it's like really uh, for, you know for feck's sake why can't I watch the next episode now 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 I want to know you know yeah I think I think it loses a little bit of its impact when you're sort of binge watching it you know and you know like I said I can easily you know two presses of a remote and I'm on to the next story so I know it or the next episode so I know what's happening but that must have been like really scary as a kid watching that I, I would say like yeah okay maybe it loses a small bit of its impact but not not all of its impact because you still want to know how he gets out of that situation yeah that's true I suppose so we mentioned about like the doctor being separated from the companions and one of the things I love about that is the fact that the companions work by themselves and it's not all about getting back to the doctor obviously that's a part of it but it's not all of it because i think it gives the companions a great opportunity to develop and to show their skills and stuff like that and we get to know their characters and they get to be the problem solvers which i love so with that if we turn our heads to the companions and after just saying it's all about character development um, I'm going to start us off with the person who unfortunately again I think gets the short end of the character development stick which is Susan yes I have very little written down about her I'll be perfectly honest she's very much the damsel in distress in this story and she's very pessimistic she doesn't take any control of any situation really um and while I get the fact that she's obviously concerned about the doctor, you would think that would spurn her on more to be active and to get out. Uh, so when I was writing my notes for Susan, I actually got into a bit of a laughing fit because she got, okay, yes, she gets sick in the jail, but she seems to get progressively worse the longer they're, they're separated from the doctor. And all I could think of is Robot Chicken. She's lost the will to live. <laughs> what's your degree in poetry <laughs> it just i like i just couldn't i couldn't get over it and it was like after everything that they've been through for the seven stories that they've just had and like especially susan now coming off a very strong uh presence in the sensor rights yeah. to really revert back to what she was like in the keys of marinus is just it's a huge roller coaster of uh development and I like Caroline Ford. I think as much as much as an amazing legacy she has with the show for presenting, like being like there from the very beginning, help get this fantastic franchise off the ground. There's a lot of time that the writing does not do credit to the woman that was there on hand at this time. Oh, completely! Like Caroline Ford is amazing. Like I need to have that sort of on record. I think she's an amazing actress and when they give her good material to work with it's phenomenal in this story though it's like 
okay, she is extremely pessimistic in the prison, which Barbara even calls her out on. And in fairness, like, you know, we talked about that cliffhanger cliffhanger ending. As far as she knows, her grandfather could be dead. Um, yeah. And I understand, and I get that. You know, we've seen them separated before, but not like this. Uh, it very much harkens back to an unearthly child. You know, that first story where he's separated from them and she goes completely apeshit. Yeah. Except this time, you know, maybe because they've traveled a bit more, because she can rely on Ian and Barbara, it's much more pessimistic than panic. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, there, I think it's. It, it just all just came into my head. Like, is it almost like surrogate parents, almost in the sense of like that she's with Ian and Barbara, and because they're there she doesn't have to feel like that she's the only one connected to the doctor she can use them as a bit of a buffer for her emotions and let them kind of worry about the doctor more so or like action trying to get him back i think so and i think a lot of that would probably be unconscious on the part of susan i don't think it's something that she actively yeah. realizes that she's oh, doing oh yeah yeah no like, yeah. but yeah i think that is the case because it is the one thing that it is quite heart-wrenching to see her so despondent over the doctor and it's, it's the one thing that caroline ford does play that very well but to your point of, you know, she gets sick in the jail. But like, dude, you need to escape. You're going to go to the guillotine, right? They're going to chop your head off. I get that you're not feeling well, but like put in some level of effort. She gives up on escape so quickly and with such, uh go without me. I'm like, dude what the hell what the hell it's just it's very i think it's very inconsistent with what we've seen development wise from this character i mean if we think about in marco polo in the aztecs in the censorites where she's you know taking ownership of herself and she has her own agency to suddenly lose it again i think it is very unfortunate and again it's a shame because like you've got Ian and Barbara who will be discussed there shortly their I suppose yeah their character development throughout these eight these now eight stories has been on a constant level and I don't think either of the two of them have dipped in an unrealistic fashion no like, no they haven't we had, we had to dis- we had the discussion like about Ian in terms of like you know uh, Keys of Marinus where he's in jail and he's not really fighting which is actually a point I'm going to make about my character discussion for Ian in this story. But again, it, it, it felt like it fitted because he only had himself to worry about as opposed to anyone else to worry about. And he trusted in the doctor, so that's why he wasn't his usual kind of uh, action man himself. But again, it was, within, it, was, it was fitting for the character. Whereas with Susan, again, it's just you've gone from standing your, by your principles in the Aztecs to being superior to your grandfather in terms of your telepathic capacity and being a small bit more revered than him maybe in that regards in the sense rights to now going back to being the definition of a damsel in distress yeah and we kind of see it as well in the description the doctor gives of her you know when he you know goes to the jail for the first time he's like a man a woman and a young child she's not a young child she's 16 years old apparently do you know (laughs) like 
they need to decide is she a teenager you know in the way that a human 16 year old teenager would be is she a young child so say 16 human years is maybe 12 on their planet is she a young woman who has her own agency or what is she and it's unfortunate that eight stories in the end of the season we still don't have a pin on that which is just, it's so unfortunate yeah uh, and like as i said like from being there from day one it's it's a shame yeah but moving on to her sort of parental figures <laughs> as we've as, as we've discussed um how would we do Ian next? What was your feeling on Ian in this story? Bearing in mind he was missing for two episodes. Ish. Bear, yeah, bearing in mind that he was, uh, well, yeah, as you said, the pre-filmed insert said, very similar to, I suppose, Caroline Ford for Aztecs. Um, again, this is another good Ian performance uh, for me uh, because we get to see the huge... Uh, huge we get to see the vastness of his um emotions on display like again as i said where when he's worried about other people he's his emotions come out a lot more and that final scene in episode two where uh barbara and susan are being taken away to the guillotine and there's just that look of oh my god on his face yeah and again now that's one down to the cinematography for that really really good close up but two as well just as important it's down to William uh, Russell's acting to get across that level of emotion and I think it's really really cool um, the other side of it though is I think that if they were to ever become trapped in a time period this is one of two time periods I think would suit Ian down to the ground uh, because he's got this very kind of Scarlet Pimpernel-esque thing kind of going on like when he's when he's held captive by Leon and the soldiers it's like you know tell me tell me the truth okay fine I'll tell you the truth I'm from 1963 <laughs> I came here in a big blue box Ooh. and it's just like you're gonna get the shit knocked out of you but you're still just poking the bear yeah I think one of the things I find with Ian in this story and I find this in a lot of his stories to be honest I love Ian I love him to bits right I think he's amazing um he is probably the most consistent in terms of his development. Do you know? We defined who he was fairly early on um, in the show. Do you know? Even like around the Daleks, I think we kind of got a good handle on who Ian is. You know, he's the action man of the group. He cares for other people. He puts them first. You know, he's very caring in that in that respect. I think every story has kind of just cemented that fact not in a boring way i don't think ian ever gets boring but you know he doesn't go through as many developmental moments i think as the others it's like every time he comes up with a challenge he rises to meet it reinforcing what we know of him as a character compared to susan who has a completely different reaction every episode a few things i did note about ian in this story one, and you know why I note this because this is just who I am when I watch TV films. Was he hitting on Barbara when he was commenting on how pretty she looked in her dress? Um, no, see, this is the thing, right? We've discussed that they've got a. It's clear that they were friends before the show started. Now, to what extent, we don't know. Like, were they just again. Uh, oh, I can't remember what show it is, but they call it, like, you know, workplace. Appro- uh, 
approximate colleagues or something like that um or like you know like were they like the kind of two that would go down for a drink on a friday evening after you know school closes that type of thing um so i wouldn't necessarily view this as like there is a point in time where there is a definite signs of attraction between the two of them but i don't think this is the story i think that's just a friend passing a compliment to another friend okay but you know how i read everything from a shipper perspective so i can't help it well, absolutely, right. and, and you know how, like, you know that I'm kind of on board that uh, train with you in the terms of these two. Like, yeah, they have to get married. They have to have loads of you know fucking adventurous, clever babies. The whole lot. Uh, but I, I, like, there is a point in time that I will, I will say to people, that's when the relationship starts to grow. Mm. But I don't, I don't think this is the moment. I think this is just like Ian being very complimentary to Barbara. Yeah. The other thing is that he is very dexterous, right? So just for our listeners who maybe haven't seen the story um when the key is left in the door by the jailer and ian sort of works his hand out this little window if you imagine a standard like cell door that has like the high window he works his hand out the window down pulls out the key brings it back up removes the key and then manages to work it back down into the lock again um which you know is quite difficult um again it does beg the question what was ian in a previous life um well in a previous life we know that he was a school teacher (laughs) in a previous life to that we know that he was sir lancelot (laughs) sir lancelot yes um i don't know like maybe he's like some sort of weird uh, you know not quite the phantom but maybe there's ian is present in like every time period and when that uh when that Ian dies, all the, the skills and knowledge that has been learned goes into the next variation. And it's just like, he's essentially a Swiss Army man. Um, but actually, that just kind of raises the point you were talking about like Ian's development and his consistency as the action man. We don't really see a whole lot more of science Ian. Like not since, I suppose, Marco Polo with the whole bamboo uh, kind of flashbang scenario no we don't but we haven't really seen his science brain come into effect we don't I was, I was actually going to mention that when i when i got to my bit on barbara actually um but it's a very good call out and i think you know him being the scientist you know it, it's a great obviously it's great for his character or whatever to have an understanding of these things but most of the stories with a science basis are future stories where the science is beyond him which is unfortunate. Yeah. Like, I just like to see it's like, because again, look, it's, he's not the, he's not the typical muscle of the group in the sense of like, you know, all he ever does is fight the villain in a physical contest. There's more to him than that. We've seen it time and time again. But I think as the stories have gone on, he has slided into the more physical side of the role as opposed to having his mental uh, challenge moments. And I would, I, I'd like to see one or two more of those come up now in the next while. I have just re- realised who Ian Chesterton's next iteration is. Who? So we've said that he, he's been Sir Lancelot, whatever. MacGyver. Yes, absolutely. Ian is a 1960s version of MacGyver. And I want to see more of his science side. Yes, I do. And maybe not the mullet, but definitely <laughs> the science <laughs> So... Um, the last two things I had about Ian. One, I love his kind of like Quasimodo slash Igor impression when he was in the bar and his little sort of like dragging the leg thing. That was very funny. 
Um, and also his argument with Barbara about who is on the right side of the French Revolution. I don't like seeing the two of them at odds. I think this is the first time they've been at odds since the Daleks. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's I don't like seeing them fight. It's, it's not nice. I don't like it. It's it's not, but I suppose again at the same time, it's it's always interesting to see how well how the fight is written, because sometimes it really make, it makes just really good story. Um, like you know, if everyone agrees the whole time, it's not always going to be very fun, and it's it can be a bit boring after a while. Whereas if there's a small bit of how should we go about doing this, uh, then like, I think it makes for really good characterization, uh, stuff like that. So I think this is actually also a good point to segue into Barbara, but I I enjoyed that moment. I enjoyed that the argument between the two of them. I just don't like seeing space parents fighting. <laughs> Grandfather, mom, and dad are fighting again. <laughs> so speaking of space mom, yes, Miss Barbara Rice. Mm. What do you think? Emphasis on the Miss. Barbara, uh, yes. she, yeah because she she's no man's woman uh I, again a fantastic performance by barbara um in terms of, like she's the patience of a saint to kind of bring, <laughs> to put up with susan's at this point in time i'm going to call it susan's bullshit or like you know like oh there's no even point after everything you've been through after everything else you have gotten out of and also those those have been times as well where you've been separated from your grandfather. Why are you throwing the towel now? Just come on. Um so again like as well, like she's on the way to the execution block and her thing is like and like this is like revolutionary France, so like there's no like they can't just hijack a car and like you know, have this like, big huge elaborate take and chase scene. It's like they're being brought there on a horse and cart. And she's surrounded by soldiers and she's still got the balls or brass neck or whatever you want to put it to try and escape attempt. Yeah. It's just like, but, um, so that's again, the assertive strong nature side of Barbara, but there's two other kind of sides to her, uh, that come out in this story. And one again is her, I would, I would say kind of unbiased view of history because as she points the e out to Ian that and again it's something that you know you, it always comes up when you study history is it's meant to be an unbiased look at past events and you know like the, the whole you know the big huge analogy is like you know hitler was evil yes he was but there was the whole roadworks and the reduction of the unemployment and uh, all that kind of stuff before world war ii happened so she kind of uses the whole thing of the french revolution well yes was a terrible time in europe's history but some good stuff did come out of it, and that's also got to be taken into account. So, now, that's a really kind of interesting argument for Barbara to make as a history teacher because she is falling into the whole it's an unbiased view of things. But the other side of her, which I think slightly diminishes my, my that that statement I just made, is her attraction to Leon, and it's when you're making when you're having this argument with Ian. Is it because this is your view as a uh, teacher of history or because the person that you kind of fancied turned out to be someone that was deceitful and, and potentially evil? Yeah. So there's a couple of things to unpack there. All right. So 
I'll go down through my notes because I do end with that one as well. So I'll go down through mine and we'll, we'll circle back around to that point. So um, first of all, we've got Barbara in history, which is Barbara in her element. Right? Yes. And all of her historical knowledge coming to the fore and being a benefit. One of the things I love about Barbara, and I'm loving it more and more as we watch these stories in order, and it is like... You know, I mentioned in previous episodes that I always ranked Ian and Barbara together. No, Barbara is like climbing up the ranking of favorite companion by herself. Just like she's she's climbing up very close to that top spot. Um, You're holding me back, Chesterton. There's no time for you. <laughs> but what I love is, you know, this is a story in the ni- set in the 1960s, as in filmed in the 1960s. And we have seen in previous stories the Doctor and Ian sort of trying to be very protective of Barbara and Susan. You know, they don't let them see or be part of the more gory aspect. Think of like the Dalek in the Daleks when they look inside the casing. You know, it's always protect the girls. Do you know? And they're referred to as the girls. Do you know? <laughs> even though Barbara's like, whatever. Um, but what I love to see is that even though she's separated from them, so it's just herself and Susan, she immediately starts thinking of a way out. Immediately. Oh, yeah. There is no, woe is me, what are we going to do? We need to wait for the boys to come save us. There is none of that. And I think earlier in the show, she would have waited. Maybe not completely. She would have eventually talked herself around and, you know, tried to find her own way out but like if you compare this to some of the earlier stories there is no waiting around she is full i can do this i'm a strong woman i can figure out a way to get us out which is great and like you said i mean she's being taken to the guillotine she um you know is in france (laughs) you know this is not modern day like she can't just steal a car or something like that and she's still like okay the horse thrown a shoe when I say we're going to run. And immediately, you know. On the flip side though, she doesn't lose her caring nature. Like when the rats start coming in, which will... Yeah. Um, <laughs> she sort of recognises the fact that Susan will not go through with this. And so she just covers up the hole. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You know, we'll be fine. And she's still that caring person that we that we've come to love as the story progressed. From the romantic-ish side of things. Two things. One, and I'll discuss this more in our overall discussion. I'll discuss it a little bit when we talk about the villains as well. Really? Why Why do I have to talk again about the fact that we have some pervy guy wanting to get off with Barbara? Why do I have to talk about it again? I think it's the nature of I, I, I'm going to say science fiction shows in general because just going through my mind now like some of the big kind of long running t- shows that we've watched you know together or separately are like you know uh, Trek and actually two of the you know Trek and Stargate both shows about ex- exploration and again you have female characters that are are hit on uh, no matter who like and like sometimes it's in a sleazy capacity sometimes it's in a not quite sleazy capacity but it, it's always going to happen 
and I, I think it's just the nature of science fiction writing is that if you have a female character in it or science fiction television writing if you have a t- female character in it they're going to come across someone that is attracted to them be it in a mutual way or a sleazy way yeah i think the reason why it bothers me is a this is the second time in one season that it has now come up um and actually it's kind of the third in a sense because we kind of said that in marco polo while it's not implied that they were going to rape her that um we wouldn't have been surprised if that had originally been in the script and they just took it out just because the way that that scene was fr- was framed. Yeah. Um, why it bothers me so much, though, is A, it just bothers me in general. I don't like sexual assault or the idea of, oh, if you warm my bed, I'll let you go. That It just gives me the creeps, no matter what story it's in. Yeah. But I think why it really bothers me is, unlike Star Trek and Stargate, which were aired around the same time of day that Doctor Who was back in the 60s. Doctor Who was marketed as a children's program. Mm. Yeah. While it was made by the drama side of the BBC, we've discussed time and again, it was designed for children. And that's I think that's why it rubs me the wrong way. Um, and with Barbara, I'm just like, seriously, um, another one. However, I love the fact that she gives no shits about it and just smacks him one in the face. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, you go, Barbara. You know, she has... Well, I, that's the bit that I... That sort of redeems it for me a little bit is she never gives... It's not that she never gives into it, but she never is weak in the face of it. Yeah. You know, we saw it with... Um, your man in the case of Marinus. She stood up for herself. She fought him back. And again here... He makes a comment and she's immediately smacking him, being like, you know, get the fuck away from me. Yeah. Then we have Leon. Now, the way... So, for everyone's benefit, Leon was introduced in an animated episode when we were watching it. Um, Yeah. And maybe it was an animation choice. However, the way they drew it, I read that as being the second perv in this one story to be creepy with Barbara. Just the way they drew him, it didn't come across to me as a mutual thing until Susan said it later. <laughs> and I was like, oh, they were meant to actually be getting along and kind of flirting. Okay. I didn't read the room that way <laughs> when I first watched it. So I was like, really? Two in one story? What the hell? Um, but I acknowledged that that was a miss reading of the scene on my part yeah because like no he we do see him in the light in the actual live episode because he appears in episode three which is one of the ones that is still there and from my watching of it there is a bit of um a mutual like there but what happens is we know to your point the animation does make him look out to be a bit more sinister and that's again we'll kind of come to that when we discuss him in person but the end like as great as it was and again thank you so much for the people that put in the time and effort to do the animations uh, for the missing stories because it's at up and it's for the time being it's the closest we'll ever get to seeing these stories played out in their entirety um sometimes there was too much focus on the facial expressions that kind of helped give the game away a bit yeah 
Um, but coming back around to your point around was Barbara's argument with Ian coming from a student of history or was it coming from a woman who kind of liked a man who betrayed them and is now dead? Um, I don't think it's the fact that he betrayed them that bothers her because she kind of knew that from the minute they went to the doctor, right? When they went to the physician, that was kind of gave the game up. Um... I think it's the fact that they killed him. That That's the bit that gets her. Is what do you mean you killed him? And the fact that neither of them seem to have any remorse for that fact. I think that's the bit that sort of gets her a little bit on her high horse. About, you know, Ian, you have to think about this time in history. Leon maybe wasn't a bad guy overall yeah he was bad to us but maybe he wasn't a bad guy overall whatever I think it's the fact that they killed him that sets her off yeah because if you think about it back to it even like in an earthly child she's adamant that they try and help Za who had up until that point had been trying to either capture or kill them so yeah no, like, I, I think I suppose again that also adds, uh, adds to the consistency of the character um yeah, it was just like, again, as much as we don't like to see space parents fight, when they do, I like to see how it's played out. If it's over something, that's understandable. And like even this, like it just raises questions as to what's the motivation behind the fight. And it lends itself to, I think, a very good discussion. So moving on, um, we move to our story-based companions. So what do you think of Jules? Uh, so I made the comparison to the Scarlet Pimpernel for Ian uh, Jules is definitely the Scarlet Pimpernel slash Black Tulip uh, type character in this story he's a swashbuckler in this, in, he's very capable like himself and Jean save um, Susan and Barbara from a superior guard force but then he saves Ian solo yeah and I would I would love the animation does that sequence really well i think but i would love to see how it played out in uh, in real life i would love to have seen like just the actual stuff proper footage of that uh gunfight sequence yeah i think that would have been really good it would have been really good um i like him uh and i think it's interesting to see it from the point of view is that he's he's not an out and out royalist so he, he doesn't completely support the monarchy what he wants is what's best for France. So in that regards, like you could view him as a as a French patriot. Like so, like obviously, he'll help whatever sides he thinks is going to have the country best for the time being. It might be the monarchy, but who knows? Where like you know, he might end up becoming a huge supporter of Napoleon. We never know. Um, and I, I think oh, that's always like the interesting thing about the historical stories is once they leave, the characters that you get attached to, it's like, well, what happened to them afterwards? Uh, and Jules is a character I'd love to kind of see what happened for him uh, in the future. Yeah, Jules kind of reminds me in some ways, and only in some ways, because this character turned out a bit crap at the end, but of Varys from Game of Thrones. In the sense that he doesn't support, he's not a royalist, like you said. Yeah. But he doesn't support Robespierre either. He, He cares about the people and he doesn't want them getting hurt. And he wants to help as many people 
as he can. Now, we also know that he has no issue with killing to serve his cause, as we mentioned with Leon. The one sort of, I wouldn't call it a criticism, but the one thing about his character that I did notice, though, is that he is very open and trusting, perhaps a little bit too much. Yeah. I get that in the business that he's in, you know, he wants to do that. But, like, if you think about it in context, the jailer says that they've had a lot of uh, quote-unquote criminals being rescued on the way to the guillotine. And from the way Jules and Jean set it up, we get the sense that it's the same crossroads a lot of the time. <laughs> it's on this one road that they do it all the time. It's definitely the Blackadder school of, uh, it was like, you know, yeah, precisely. If we hit them the exact same time for the hundredth time, they'll never be suspecting it. Yeah, and it's like, if, you know, think about the big picture. You took them to your secret hideout. And told them everything, including your name. Like, dude, you're not very good at being secretive about your secret underground movement, are you? Um, and clearly, he was betrayed. Um, so that is the one thing about his character that, like I said, it's not a criticism. I think it actually makes him a more fleshed out character. Because in his desire to, you know, protect the people of france he's a bit of an idealist and it kind of blinds him a little bit yeah because if i was lemaitre or if i was robespierre i would definitely put a few plants on a cart going towards the guillotine and wait for them to be rescued and come back to me with all the information (laughs) (laughs) like duh yeah (laughs) no i think a character that's definitely like he's you're never bored when he's on screen. No. So we mentioned, or you mentioned rather, earlier in the episode that we have a couple of people that we don't quite know where to put them. So my proposal is we put the following two characters, which are Lemaitre and Leon, in where they finally fell in the story. I I think that's probably the fairest way to yeah. do it. So looking at Lemaitre says Sterling first... My first thing I've written down for him, which sort of is a nice sort of contrast with what I said about Jewel, is he is a secret agent done well. Yes. He does not jeopardize his position in any way, shape or form. And like, until the reveal, even after the reveal of like, uh, hang on a sec now here, lad, I I think you're you're full of shit. It's like, I I, I did think he was still... I remember the the revolution up until the very end. He's so good at being the bad guy. You don't believe him that he's the good guy. You almost believe, no, he heard the name Sterling being banded about and has just claimed that that's who he is. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, usually in stories like that where you've got like an undercover operative or whatever, you see them trying to do everything they can to protect the heroes. Do you know? And then that makes them look a little bit suspicious and then it reveals, oh no, I was trying to help you. No, he clearly couldn't give a monkeys about Barbara and Susan. Um, he signed, the only reason he kept Ian was because he thought that um, the other gentleman in the cell had said something to him. But like he isn't there to save people. He's there to gather information. And he does it so well. 
I think it was written very, very well and acted very well as well. Yeah, because like when you go back, like you watch it the first time, it's like, oh, it's the big reveal, and then you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh, like a lot of the stuff that he did, you know, as Lamatra is very altruistic for the guys, and then you go back and rewatch it again, you're like, no, no, that's not really altruistic at all. It's just like he's just out to use them to get what he needs. Yeah, it's a, he's a very good character to follow in a second watch through to see if there oh, are any time. of those sort of dead giveaways, which I don't think there are. But one thing I will say about the guy is that he does seem to be a man of honour. Yes. In the sense of, look, if you help me, I will get you out of France. And they helped him. And, you know, he's good to his word. And, like, yes, while, like, you know, this is the end of the La Matra uh, persona as such. Like, he, the fact that he is, like, a spy in enemy territory and he's willing to put his life on the line to help people that are willing to help him, I think is great. Like, he's not a sort of a... Uh, hang him high and dry type of guy once the once he gets what he wants yeah the other side of that coin leads us into the villains of the story we have leon why does it always have to be the handsome ones why what i have down though and again this is not a criticism of the animation i think the animation was great however it's just the way they chose to frame him in the animation for me, this was Secret Agent done badly <laughs> because from almost the minute he appeared on screen, I thought he was being creepy and thought that he wasn't on their side. Um, had I watched it purely the way it was shot, I don't know if I would have had that same impression, but we don't know. Like My kind of thing about um, Leon is that his greatest asset is also his greatest weakness. And his greatest asset is the fact that he's very charismatic and he's dashing and he's a very engaging person, which is why Barbara gets drawn into the conversation with him. But I have a feeling that then the reason it's his greatest weakness is because I'm based on a, an interaction he has with Danielle, which is it, she comes in and he like, you know, I'd like a bit more wine. Thank you very much. And she's just like, get it yourself and just tips out the door. It's like, are you one of those guys that has two brains and you think with one of them more than the other? <laughs> or sorry, two heads and thinks with one of them more than the other? And I, I get the thing is because he knows he's very dashing and very charismatic, I, th- I have a feeling that he just tries to, you know, fucking throw himself around the place. And with that, it's actually how he ends up um, becoming a lot more suspicious as the story goes on. Yeah, I think I think that might have been part of the reason why... I didn't trust him as well, is Danielle's reaction to him. Yeah, yeah. He clearly doesn't like him very much. <laughs> um, so I think that's why I didn't trust him. The one thing I'd say about Leon, and maybe you disagree with me on this, is I think he works fine in the story. But I think the, the story could have worked exactly the same way without him. I think yeah. you could have removed him entirely from the story and it wouldn't have affected the plot. So for me, he's kind of a throwaway villain in, in that respect. I think maybe if, like, you know, Jean... Jules's friend had been the uh, the the spy. Like it, it probably would have been. It would have gone just as well. But I don't. Think, I don't. I don't think even needed the spy though. Is the thing. I don't think the spy added anything to the story that couldn't have been removed and written around in an easy way. Other yeah. Other than as a um, a means to separate the group again. Yeah. That's probably about it. Yeah. Uh, and how about we come on to his royal highness of sleazedom the jailer yeah so 
creep. <laughs> Literally, first thing I've written in capital letters. Creep. Creepy, drunken lech. You know, he kind of fits that sort of idiot jailer stereotype, you know, that we see in movies and TV. Oh yeah, he's very lord of his own kingdom until uh, the like the even like the person that's just slightly above him will come in and it's like yes citizen no citizen three bags full citizen yeah um I think he's just really creepy <laughs> to be honest that that's that like the main thing uh, he's also very easily led so we've sort of had we've sort of had a history of characters particularly villains who are a bit dim. And the jailer yes. is one of them. Like the way the doctor repeatedly plays him over and over um, is it, it's brilliant to watch because he's such a creep. And the one thing that Fool me once. the one thing that bothers me is I don't think he got enough comeuppance. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's the thing. Like on screen, we we won't see his comeuppance, but I'm pretty sure that he'll get chucked in jail for letting enemies of the revolution out and he'll also be guillotined maybe yeah but i just i just think he's a creep did you have anything else about him? oh yeah um other than the fact that he's again that typical it's not even comic relief it's the he like he's sleazy comic relief in the sense because like, you know, obviously we said look he's a lech he's a creep but when it came to the whole thing of you know uh you, you like you just basically you're drunk you're you're a drunkard and you try to say that you fought off people it's like no not happening man like you're you're going to get ousted pretty soon yeah so before we move on to our overall discussion of the story and our, our scoring and stuff we should probably call out the fact that there's one person in the story who was the villain for the majority of the characters but we haven't really discussed him and that's Robespierre himself yeah. Now, for me, I didn't see him as the villain for our characters, which is why I didn't include him um, in his own section, because he exists in the reality of the story, but he has no direct impact on our characters. And I actually like the fact that they didn't focus on Robespierre himself. I like the fact that it was a story that just happened to be set during this time, and so he has to be there because it's during this time. I think like there's there's going to be stories coming up now in the next while where we we are going to have direct involvement from historical figures and pseudo involvement, mm. and I think I think Robespierre was their first experiment with toying about how to use a, an actual historical figure in. In a villain in a villain capacity, because uh, we know Marco Polo was a real person. We know that Kublai Khan was a real person. But you put Marco into the villain uh, category. I put him into the companion. But we're not going to get back into that. <laughs> whereas Tagana, whereas Tagana, Tagana, I think is a composite of loads of different people that probably suited an ideology at the time. So and Clatoxel uh, again, he could just be insert nameless evil Aztec priest here, whereas Robespierre is an actual historical person with records and they have a huge impact on the history of a nation. Mm. So we'll get into it in the overall section because I have some notes there about it. I think that for me personally, the taste that he left, it made me want a bit more. I want, like he had such good 
back and forth with the doctor i would have liked to have seen maybe one or one more episode with that yeah i i I agree but for me in terms of you know companion versus villain i wouldn't have personally put him in either in the context of our usual discussions because i i don't i don't think he's the villain of this story he's the villain of the time period but not but not for us Oh, absolutely. And we'll be doing the same for like other characters. I'm pretty sure like the, the Crusade, which is a couple of uh, good few weeks mm. away, it does have historical figures that have a sort of influence on how the story goes, but not directly on... Like, they're not villains and they're not heroes in the way that we've done it every so week. So I think, as I said, Robespierre is like the first dip in the water for that. And it just left me kind of wanting more. That's pretty much it. So that's another uh, discussion about uh, characters uh, for the show. So how about we go through our overall story uh, scores? So Trish, how about you lead us in? Cool. So I think this was a very good story as evidence, and apologies to our listeners for how long this episode has gone on. (laughs) I think it was a very good story. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that happened. While sometimes the animation choices let it down for me, the whole Leon thing and me knowing that he was the bad guy from the off. It was great to see the missing episodes brought to screen in this way and integrated so so seamlessly, really, with the story as a whole. I think it was done really, really well. Mm. Where this story loses points for me, the main one, I've already addressed a little bit, the sexual creepy stuff with barbara i'm 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 just not a fan of it yeah i don't think it adds anything to the story and to your point it's kind of the cliche and i could really do without it and i really hope i don't have to discuss it again for a long time um I don't know if that's gonna be true but i guess go across the fingers is that just with barbara or is in in the nature of the show both overall i would give this and there's gonna be a random scoring probably the most random we've had so far a 4.25 which is i know very specific <laughs> i thought you were gonna say like 4, 4.17 or something like that no <laughs> so yeah. 4.25 and the reason why is i think four is too low for the story personally yeah but i think 4.5 is too high <laughs> so i had to go somewhere in the middle so <laughs> no. a 4.25 no that's that's understandable uh i went with a four i went with a 4.5 uh again for a couple of the same reasons as yourself uh the main my main ones being my main detraction points are the under underutilization of susan in the story yeah. i'm getting a bit annoyed of it uh because we've seen the the great potential the character has and it's not being utilized so it gets very annoying when three out of a four person core cast are given everything and one person is kind of here's what we have for you this week it just gets a bit frustrating as a i suppose as a fan of susan it gets a bit frustrating after a while and the other thing is i kind of mentioned it in just in the last part there is i would have liked to have seen robespierre interact with the doctor maybe once or twice more because Robespierre is such a huge part of the French Revolutionary history. Like the guy is like 
he's built and as well like in the story he's built to be an absolute monster and one thing I love seeing is the doctor matches wits with people and I would love to have seen the doctor matches wits a bit more with uh, Robespierre I have a question for you with yes. that and I wonder if this was just my impression because again most of the Robespierre stuff was animated yeah alright did you get the sense, or was it just me, when the doctor starts talking about how things are being managed in Paris, hmm. Robespierre seems very interested in his feedback um, and clearly wants to you know, know more from him about how to make this better. Um, I wonder if you picked up on that or if that was just me and my read of the animation. Well, like, see, that was the, that's the thing about the animation is that I tried not to let her... Uh, tilt my view too much at the scoring because it's like the kind of the story I suppose is the thing that we're going over with and while yes I do completely agree with your points about the animation and Leon kind of tipping the tipping the hat a bit too much uh, to make him out to be creepy perm spy man um, with that side of things that, that didn't really make any, uh, with the Rose Bear thing it didn't really make a dent on me so that's something I probably missed myself hmm I think overall, 4.25 on 4.5, I think we can agree this is an excellent story. Oh, yeah. I do think the animation is awesome, and it's great that you can literally watch the episode from beginning to end and not feel taken out. Because I don't think the, you know, I know you don't want to let the animation impact your scoring, but we need to talk about it because this was a missing, this is a sto- the story had missing episodes. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, I think you can completely enjoy the story beginning to end with absolutely no issue whatsoever. And for me, it's going to be interesting to compare this with next week's episode, Planet of Giants, where the version that we are going to be looking at Mm. also has reconstructed elements to it. Yes, but in a very different way. Yeah. So any final thoughts to add, Paddy? Uh, nothing really other than the fact of that i would highly recommend everyone to watch this and again watch it either by the, the reconstruction so you can see that just that clip of the door constantly opening and closing or to watch the animation and see what the bbc attempted to do to um sorry to get the bbc to see what they attempted to do in terms of revitalizing and bringing the lost stories back to life so overall, a great closeout to the first season of Doctor Who. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the first story of season two, Planet of Giants. Yes, something I'm really looking forward to going over with you. And if you would like to hear more about the upcoming episodes and join in the conversation with myself and Trish, you can check us out at Time Team on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Until next time, bye. Bye-bye.